And I have to say something rather radical now. And that is it's the same thing I said back in 2015. If the price of America's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal and that withdrawal saved potentially many thousands of Israeli lives, including the lives of my children and grandchildren, and the price of that is alienating some Democrats, then alienate away. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Whatever you think of President Donald Trump, it's difficult to deny that he was extremely supportive of Israel. He moved the American embassy to Jerusalem. He recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. He proposed a peace plan which would have been acceptable to a large majority of the Israeli population. He encouraged peace treaties between Israel and Arab countries like the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, and more. And many would argue that withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal was his most important move of all. On the other hand, the Obama administration is often regarded as being unusually hostile to Israel. Most tellingly, President Obama's refusal to veto a Security Council resolution condemning Israeli building in East Jerusalem and the West Bank was seen as a direct slap in the face towards Prime Minister Netanyahu and Israel as a whole. With this history in mind, Many supporters of Israel are concerned about what to expect from a future Biden administration. While Joe Biden has long been considered a friend of Israel, and in fact, when Obama was running for the presidency in 2008, Biden used to say that he never would have accepted a position as his running bait if he doubted Obama's commitment to Israel's security. The fact remains that Joe Biden was part of that administration and is the leader of a Democratic Party, which is increasingly seen, rightly or wrongly, as ambivalent towards Israel. Is there a reason for Israelis and others who support Israel to be worried? To answer this question, I spoke with Michael Oren, the Israeli ambassador to the United States from 2009 through 2013. His experiences as the ambassador are recounted in his excellent book, Ally, which describes his interactions with members of the Obama administration, including President Obama and Vice President Biden. As an historian and as someone who knows Joe Biden well, He is among the most qualified individuals anywhere to help us know what to anticipate in the coming Biden administration. Ambassador Michael Oren made Aliyah from the United States in 1979. He served in the IDF and holds a PhD in history from Princeton University. He served as an officer in the IDF spokesman's office during both the 2006 Lebanon War and the Gaza War in 2008 and 2009. After having served as ambassador to the United States, he was elected to the 20th Knesset as a member of the Kulanu Party and was named deputy minister in charge of public diplomacy in 2016. He is the author of several books, including Ally, Six Days of War, and Power, Faith, and Fantasy, The United States in the Middle East, 1776 to 2006. Thank you for joining me today, Ambassador Oren. It's an honor to have you with me on the Orthodox Conundrum. Let's review this, Scott. Let's start off with a big, broad question, which people who support Israel have been discussing for quite a while. Do supporters of Israel, in your opinion, have anything to fear from a Biden presidency and a Biden administration? I think fear is too strong a word. I mean, I know Joe Biden uh, very well. I worked with him closely for close to five years, and uh, I know him to be a good man, an honest man, uh, genuinely pro-Israel. He belongs to that generation that remembers 1967, certainly remembers 1973. He has... Israel in his heart, as we like to say. 
Um, and uh, he would never do anything he believes that would hurt the, the Israel, Israel security, that would in any way um, undermine the Israeli-American alliance, et cetera. So you know, fear doesn't enter there. We have reasons for concern. One is that uh, the uh, president-elect will then revert to previous administration's policy, particularly that of the Obama administration on the Palestinian issue. He would jettison the uh, Trump peace plan, which was acceptable to the great number of Israelis, and go back to the uh, Obama-Clinton parameters. That's uh, two states on the basis of the 67 borders for the Palestinian uh, capital, East Jerusalem, which is not acceptable for the vast majority of Israelis. Um, he will oppose uh, Israeli building in Judea and Samaria in, in unified Jerusalem, uh, which is not the acceptable to the majority of Israelis again. He will would reopen the Palestinian embassy in, in Washington or the American consulate in East Jerusalem, which in the past served as sort of a, a de facto American embassy to the Palestinians. He would renew aid to UNRWA and other Palestinian en entities. And that's why the Palestinian Authority is very, very excited about his his, uh, his election, um, you know, probably for good reason. He would return the Palestinian issue to the forefront. I'm wondering, though, what you're describing sound like Obama administration positions, and obviously Joe Biden was a key part of that administration. Are these necessarily his own positions as well, or is this the entire thought of the Democratic Party at this point, so that everybody who's elected from the Democratic Party, at least in the centrist part of the Democratic Party, will go by these opinions? And the answer is yes. Uh, yes. The question is how... how Forcefully and emphatically, he'll pursue these, pursue these positions. Uh, with, with President Obama, these positions were deeply ideologically held. As a matter of fact, he put his whole, the prestige of his presidency on, the, on stopping uh, Israeli building in Judea and Samaria and East Jerusalem. Every time he built a, a room in Gilow, it became a crisis. I don't right. think that's going to be the case with Joe Biden. And I also think he's a, he's a smart guy. And he's seen how administration of administration has invested uh, political and diplomatic capital in a search for Palestinian and Israeli peace, and it hasn't turned up anything. His ideology won't blind him to that part, uh, which is important. I think that the more serious issue is the Iran issue and the declared intention of both um, the president-elect and the vice president-elect uh, to renew the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, uh, the JCPOA, uh, which... Uh, was not just a portrayal of the state of Israel and, and the vast majority of Arabs in the Middle East, it's a strategic danger to us. It, it greatly enriched, empowered, and legitimized an Iranian regime which seeks our destruction. Uh, and as the world's largest uh, state sponsor of terror, which is, is developing into continental ballistic missiles that can hit the United States of America. It, it is, it is the, the greatest challenge this country has faced, I believe, uh, since 1973. Why do you think that Biden will go back into that deal? Meaning, I understand that Obama championed that deal. There are obvious deficiencies in that deal, which I think President-elect Biden has acknowledged. So is it possible he'll go in with changes, which is frankly what President Trump had said he was going to do also if the Iranians were open to it? Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. I hope that's the case. I hope that's the case. The question is, how deep are those changes going to be? And will they materially um, prevent Iran from ever getting a nuclear weapon? Will it Will it, will it address what they call euphemistically Iranians, Iran's malign behavior? Malign behavior is they're attempting to destroy us, malign behavior. Right. Uh, supports the you know, greatest state sponsor of terror. That's malign behavior. It's like, you know, uh, I think like that's a fair Stalin, statement. Stalin was a ma malign actor. Yeah. Right? Mao was a malign actor. Uh, doesn't quite work, but um, we don't buy it. Right. The question is, how are we going to react? It's not just how, uh, how the president-elect is going to act, but what's going to be Israel's position? I, I strongly believe we have to engage immediately in an intimate 
uh, conversation with the with the new president. And I think that uh, we should, for the first time, uh, publish what we think a good deal would look like because we never did it. We never did it in 2015. And this enabled President Obama back then to claim that there was no deal that would ever be good enough for Israel, which wasn't true. We knew what a good deal looked like. And, so we uh, should make it public, in other words. We have to make it public and let everybody know what we would consider very a good deal. Very much, very public. This is what we consider a good deal. This is what will save the people of Israel from harm. And we should count it that way. Based on what you just said then, I'm curious about the fact that as of this recording, we're recording on Thursday, I believe that no one in the Biden administration, or at least not the higher-ups there, have yet spoken to Israeli officials, even though they've spoken to many other countries. When you speak about this communication between the two countries, right. is that something we should be concerned about, or is that simply a matter of he has to get to a whole bunch of countries and it doesn't really mean anything? And the answer is to both questions is yes. Um, you know, our government was late in congratulating uh, the president-elect, didn't use the P word, didn't use president. Mm -hmm. And I know American political culture and they will take this very seriously. Um, I've told a story about the Sandy Hook massacre. You know, remember that crazy gunman went in and right. gunned all these kids. Um, um, we took, for all sorts of reasons, five, six hours before um, I could get a, a letter of condolence from Prime Minister Netanyahu to President Obama. And what I got was a serious reprimand from the White House. How is it that our number one ally in the Middle East, we give you all this aid, we support you, and you took five, six hours to get this level of condolence? So they didn't forget that. They really? were genuinely angry, by the way, genuinely angry and hurt. So it's going to have an impact. So I wouldn't be surprised, you know, uh, that it may take a little bit longer before uh, the president-elect gets back to our prime minister. Well, then what kind of impact can it have, aside from some discomfort for the first few weeks? I mean, is there any actual, real, tangible, substantive difference that could happen? Yeah, to be seen. Uh, we saw in 2009 that uh, President Obama uh, called Mahmoud Abbas before he called Bibi Netanyahu. So, and, <laughs> and that didn't augur well. Uh, I just, I just don't think. I know that while Joe Biden is not Donald Trump, neither is he Barack Obama. And uh, and yes, the Democratic Party has policies on the Palestinian issue, on Iran. Um, but it is not going to be as ideologically driven as it was. Uh -huh. In what sense will it not be as ideologically driven? Is it more pragmatic? More pragmatic. I don't. I don't think Joe Biden is that kind of an ideologue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I wrote a, a book called Ally, which was my memoir of my time in Washington, which I, I loved. I can how. tell you right now. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and by the way, let me say I've used that book many times when people make the claim that President Obama was anti-Semitic. I'll say, well, have you read Ambassador Oren's book, Ally, which gives lie to that claim? You demonstrate that he may have had a very idealistic view of Israel, which is different from the reality, but he certainly was not fundamentally anti-Semitic or anti-Israel. No, he's not an anti-Semite at all. He wasn't even anti-Israel. He wasn't anti-Israel. Right. He just, he had a different concept of Israel. And uh, he, I think he wanted to normalize America's relationship with Israel, but we had always had, we gotten used to a special relationship. Right. Now we've seen that special relationship for the last four years. So it's hard for us to get to sort of downgrade, to accept a downgrade of that. And that's what happened with that, with that relationship. Yeah, so in this book, I talked about how I, you know, how I studied Barack Obama, because nobody knew him at the time. He was like a, an unknown quantity. So I, I'd been trained as an historian. So I used all my historian tools to figure out who this was. And I read all of his speeches, read all of his interviews, everything he ever read and wrote, and everything he wrote. And um, I came up with one of the conclusions. But one of the fundamental conclusions was, that this was a highly, highly ideological individual whose ideology 
was almost indistinguishable from the ideology that had dominated American campuses. Hmm. And so if you if you spend time in any American campus, you would know the, the president's worldview. But this was not true of, of Joe Biden. Joe Biden is went to school before the 1960s. Right. And uh, is not a product of the youth revolution. And he is a pragmatic centrist Democrat. Not everybody in his part is, is his party is. So speaking of the pragmatic wing of the Democratic Party, let's talk about that fascinating orthodoxy that seems to have been disproven over the past few months, namely that nothing can be solved between Israel and its Arab neighbors without simultaneously progressing on the Israeli-Palestinian front. And the recent right. deals between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, give lie to that. So the question is, do you think that a Biden administration will accept this new reality and simultaneously, while pushing for relationships to improve between Israel and the Palestinians also allow the other relationships to flourish and to expand. Do you think that's possible as well? I think it's possible. But again, the answer is never quite black and white. I think that the Biden administration will push the Palestinian issue. I don't know how vigorously again. Um, I believe it will do nothing to interfere uh, with these new Abraham Accord relationships with Bahrain, UAE, perhaps the Sudan. I would be surprised if the new administration invests heavily in those in those relationships or seeks additional relationships, because you know, it's in the nature of, of presidential politics that the, the new president does not usually invest in the legacy of the previous president, <laughs> especially if there's bad blood between them. And here there's bad blood. And so the Abraham Accords were, you know, they belong to Trump. Right. And, you know, why should I, as a new president, why should I invest in those? So it, it's unfortunate because I think that uh, the tide was turning in a way that Israel could uh, really make new peace agreements with other Arab countries. The one sort of hope, and I would put hope in deep, big, very big quotation marks around it, is that if the United States does re-enter the Iran nuclear deal, it will impel many Arab countries to join closer to Israel because um, the Iranian threat will be so great that we're going to have to we're going to have to bound together, to bind together to confront it. A strange consequence that obviously we're not looking forward to for that particular reason. Right. You know, one of the most troubling events to me over the past four years was the apparent willingness of the Trump administration, or at least of President Trump himself, to allow Israel to become a partisan issue. And they allowed Republicans to be seen as the Israel supporters and demonizing Democrats as those who dislike Israel. Do you believe that there still is a bipartisan consensus in support of Israel in the House and the Senate? I think that the, the chunks taken out of bipartisanism, bipartisanship in, in, in the United States began much, much earlier. Hmm. Uh, they began in the later Bush years. They certainly accelerated under Obama. I remember a speech that President Obama gave to the American, to the community, Jewish community of Washington, where he basically said, you know, my, my values are American Jewish values. The Netanyahu's values aren't American Jewish values. <laughs> so you got to support this, the Iran nuclear deal. I mean, really, talk about making, putting Israel, making it a political football. Right. So it became divisive. And and, um, and if you read, uh, say, Ben Rhodes' interview um, with uh, David Solomon in the New York Times, he basically said, we set out to drive a wedge. Okay. So then don't, it's not all Trump's fault. Trump was the person who came out and really said it publicly. Right. <laughs> you know, he said the again. quiet part out loud. He took it another step. I think that even within the Democratic Party, um, there is still a, a very solid groundswell ground of support for Israel. Um, I mean, you can go to the progressive wing, you're going to see, you know, you're going to see criticism there, but not in the center of the Democratic Party to certain core commitments. That is to Israel security, to uh, military aid for Israel, 
to defend Israel's right to defend itself under certain circumstances. And um, you know, that hasn't changed. Well, in that case, let me ask about that progressive left, that wing of the Democratic Party. If you go by Twitter followers and influence in the media, it seems to me at least that members of what they call the squad colloquially, you know, Rashida Tlaib, yeah. Ilan Omar, etc., they have a very, very strong influence and voice in the Democratic Party. But is that really true? For the mainstream Democratic Party, are they a fringe element or are they the future? I think you can look at a number of indicators. So one metric would be voting for Israel, voting for aid, voting to support Israel. Um, again, pro-Israel legislation, I don't think they've had that such a major impact. You don't think it'll have a major effect on it in the long term? I don't know about the future, but up to now they have not. Okay. A major criticism of Prime Minister Netanyahu has been that he was joined at the hip with President Trump in many ways and allowed that to happen. And this made me nervous. I always feared that their close association would end up making Israel a Trumpian position. And because of the visceral dislike of people who don't vote for Trump, for Trump, I was afraid that it would in turn make Zionism a Trumpian position. And then it would be very difficult for people on the left who are anti-Trump to justify supporting Israel. So often the positions that are associated with the enemy camp becomes positions that you can't like even if you actually do like them. Is this going to be a long-term problem, do you think? It, it is, and I would not try to minimize it in any other way, other than to say that I don't think uh, Netanyahu had much choice. I mean, here you had the, the literally the most pro-Israel president in our history who was making very significant uh, symbolic gestures, recognizing Jerusalem as our capital, recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. But you know, more materially, in terms of our security, standing up for us in, in the Security Council, um, uh, cutting off aid to Palestinian organizations that were just, you know, were virile, were, were virulent and anti-Israel and, and promoted violence and, uh, and withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal and reimposing sanctions on Iran. These are these are steps which every Israeli has to be deeply grateful. So it's very difficult to stand up and say, OK, we don't want your help. What I think we could have done a much better job is at the same time reaching out to the Democrats. And uh, I know of you know ministers who, who went to Washington and met with Republicans, but you know, basically didn't invest much time in the Democrats. And what you just said, I think, is, I'm not going to say universally, but pretty widely held as being true that President Trump, mm -hmm. even, and I'm very open about the fact that I'm not a supporter of President Trump, but I acknowledge that his support for Israel has been phenomenal. We can't ignore oh. what he's done. Um, would you really say that his support was unilaterally and one-sided pro-Israel, or is there another side to it as well? I'm not trying to get you to, to criticize President Trump. I'm just wondering, is the conventional viewpoint that President Trump was the greatest president for Israel-American relations ever is true? Mm -hmm. Or is it possible to say, well, he's the greatest president for Likud-America relations, but perhaps that's not necessarily the same thing as being pro-Israel across the board no matter what? What would you say about that? I would say that... Um Again, I'm talking about the most pro-Israel president we've known since 1948, and I'm an historian, and I know every single one of them. <laughs> and uh, and it, it was a different level. And I'll tell you a story. I'll, tell you, I'll, start, I'll, I'll reply with a little anecdote here. That is when, um, this is now several years ago, when Nikki Haley was the ambassador uh, to the United States to the UN, um, she convened the Security Council to discuss aggression against Israel. And I, was in, I was in the Knesset, and I asked my staff, I said, I just out of curiosity, what was the last time Anybody, the United States or anybody, convened the Security Council to discuss, to discuss aggression against Israel, not Israeli aggression against somebody else. And they went and they looked and looked. Do you know when the last time was before that? When? Never. Never. Hmm. Never. Wow. This administration was the first administration to convene the Security Council to discuss people attacking us. Now, that's amazing. Nobody, very few people know that. And what can I say? It came at a prize. 
And I have to say something rather radical now. And that is it's the same thing I said back in 2015. If the price of America's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal and that withdrawal saved potentially many thousands of Israeli lives, including the lives of my children and grandchildren, and the price of that is alienating some Democrats, then alienate away. Hmm. Are you concerned that President Biden, aside from the Iranian deal, will undo certain moves that President Trump made? For example, I'm guessing this is actually against American law. I don't think this could even happen, but at least not easily. But for example, to move the embassy back to Tel Aviv or other moves such as withdrawing recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights and so on and so forth. Are you concerned that would happen or will a President Biden allow those things that happen to remain as they are? That's sort of a no-brainer. He's already said he's going to allow that. He's not going to do that. <laughs> so I, I can, I can and I include Golan's opportunity. Uh, the Golan Heights, I don't think it's been a little bit more, uh, more amorphous, but I don't think it's worth him making that kind of move. And for whom? For, for the Syrians? Mm-hmm. It'd be one thing if you had a Syrian partner who's saying, oh, I'm willing to negotiate, but you've got to withdraw recognition there. But that's not happening. I want to ask you, based on your wide and vast experience analyzing and being a historian of American politics, I wonder if the recent vote the election that just took place is in some ways a repudiation of the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. The reason I wonder it is based on the idea that it seems, there's armchair politics, you can tell me I'm completely wrong, that the progressive wing or the more extreme wing of any party is probably better at bringing the passion, getting out the vote, whereas the centrists are better at getting people to cross across the aisle, perhaps getting a Republican to vote for Biden or getting a Democrat to vote for Trump. I don't know if that's true or not. In this election, turnout wasn't the problem. The problem was, and when I say problem, Democrats are shocked that President Trump was as successful as he was, even though he lost the election. So they would say the problem was the influence of the left rather than not having enough leftist ideas. What's your feeling about that? I think it's axiomatic in any election that you run for the primaries uh, to your extreme and then you cut to the center. Mm-hmm. It, happens, it happens in this country, too. Sure. And that's it. You have to animate your base uh, in the first section. And then you have to sort of get to the center and especially the undecided. Um, and for that, you can't be too radical. You can't. You'll alienate them. And I know that in the Democratic Party, people excoriated the, the progressive wing for costing them votes. And they ascribed a lot of uh, Trump's uh, success and the Republican success numerically, even though they didn't win, uh, or certainly the president didn't win, um, to the the fear that centrists had of the radical wing of the Democratic Party, the way it is. But I also think that unlike the Obama period where the progressives sort of sat quietly, this time they won't. They'll be much more vocal. It feels like they're very vocal, at least in my mind. Certainly for the past four years, they've been vocal. Yes, but they're going to keep on being vocal. They're going to keep on. They're not, they're not, they're not going back in. They, they, now that they're out, they're not going back in anyway. What changed? Why are they not going to let Biden be Biden at this point? I think one has to do with the personality of President Obama. Here was you know, the first African-American president. It was a major accomplishment. And uh, he himself was, you know, professed progressive policies. Those policies, I think I'd fair to say, were more centrist than progressive mm-hmm. and moved slowly on progressive issues. Um, and now, you know, after Trump and the entire radicalization of the American political system, they're not going to be, the progressives are going to be much less willing to sort of uh, give a pass to to President Biden on progressive issues. At this point, obviously, we haven't even begun the transition, never mind actually beginning a Biden presidency. But Americans who are concerned about Biden going back into the Iran deal, is there anything they can do? Is there Are there activities that they should be involved in right now that you would recommend to them that can actually stave that off, perhaps? Or is it a done deal in yeah. your mind? 
And there's a committee against the Iran deal. I think it's headed by Dennis Ross still. Um, you can write. I, I'm certainly writing all the time. Uh, let your uh, legislators know that this deal, though it makes people feel good in certain parts of the Democratic Party, is going to cost Israeli lives. It, this, is not, this is not politics. This is not politics. It's life and death. Let me ask one final question about that. President Trump's withdrawal from the deal thereby technically allowing Iran, at least vis-a-vis the United States, to do what it wants because he left the deal, and then a Biden reinstating the deal, would that be worse than President Trump never having left it in the first place? Meaning, does that actually undermine it and make it even worse because there haven't been the same level of inspections during the past few years that the United States hasn't mm-hmm. been involved with that deal at all? So you have to ask the majority of Israelis what they think about it. One of the great things about the, the Iran nuclear deal is, is the deeply patronizing aspect of it, where, where these people in the Democratic Party are telling Israelis what's in their interest, how, how best to preserve their families' lives. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinarily arrogant. And here it is. Now that Democrats are, are running around, and I hear them saying that Iran is closer today to a nuclear weapon than it was in 2015. Ask Israelis whether they think that. First of all, Iran has, has enriched uranium over the level specified by the JCPOA, but it has not enriched enough uranium for a single bomb. And the alternative to that is a, an agreement which gives Iran, again, tens of billions of dollars to spend on missiles that will surround us from every country all around us. And while it gets the missiles, it maintains its nuclear infrastructure. It can develop centrifuges that can, can get rich four times as long. And when this thing, when the agreement expires, because it has sunset clause, Iran will be able to enrich enough uranium in a very, very short period of time to make Dozens, perhaps hundreds of bombs. And when we try to stop them, we, and this will try to stop them, we will be hit by thousands and thousands of rockets. That's Hmm. it. So ask Israelis whether they'd rather have Iran now enriched a little bit over the JCP base or face Iran in five, six years from now, which is making a hundred bombs and hitting us with thousands of missiles per day, thousands. That's the estimate of the IDF. Israelis will shake their heads and say, of course, it's a no brainer. Well, what would a future President Biden say about that exact point, though? Now that the sunset clauses are visible, this is not something taking place in the far future. When Obama made that deal, sunset clauses would take place long after he was done being president. That's not the case with President Biden. Wouldn't that be an impediment to him as well, realizing that he is going to have to deal with the consequences directly during perhaps his second term? It would be. But I think it has become a, you know, it was the signal accomplishment of the Obama administration. I think it's become a matter of pride. And I think there's tremendous pressure on President-elect Biden to actually rejoin this agreement. Um, you ask me what, what can American Jewish uh, supporters of Israel but do about the Iran nuclear deal, especially if they're, you know, if they're Democrats, is, is to just to say what I just said. This is what Israelis think. Don't listen, don't listen to what Ben Rhodes said. Look at what, what, what 10 million Israelis say. Don't listen to what 10 million Israelis say. Listen to what th- millions of Arabs say. This thing is going to kill us. And you negotiated it behind our back and lied to us. And, you know, nobody liked the fact that Trump allegedly betrayed his allies, but you guys did. And I think (laughs) there's no question about that. It's not even up to debate. I was in the room when they lied to us every week. So, you know, I'm... I'm, Lied to you every week? Can you just explain what you mean by that? In what way do they lie to you every week? Well, we had emissaries from the administration coming in. Some of them are candidates for high office coming to us and saying, we're not negotiating. There's no other track. This is the only track. But in fact, it was a secret track. So much for not betraying your allies. 
<laughs> we can laugh now. I, I was hoping that this conversation. I, <laughs> I was hoping that this conversation oh, yeah. would uh, end up being a very hopeful one, where you'd say, you know, something Israelis have nothing to worry about. Joe Biden is going to be the best friend. You should see what he's going to do. You'll love it. And unfortunately, you're not saying that. But I guess it's more important to know the truth than to oh, know than I'm to. I'm saying that. that I'm saying he's gonna, it's going to be okay. We're okay, but we have this major issue. And it, what can I say? I can't. I was just on an American radio show just before getting on with you. And um, talking to a couple of million Americans. And I said, listen, I don't get involved in American internal politics. You didn't hear me during the election, you know, coming out for Trump or coming out for Biden. But this issue is an exception. because This is not politics. It is quite literally our lives. And on that, none of us can morally remain quiet, morally. Ambassador Michael Oren, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Remember to go to jewishcoffeehouse.com for lots of great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chuchmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. You can also find my blog, The Scott Conversation, there. And please consider becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron by going to our Patreon page. The link is in the description of this podcast. For a small monthly donation, you decide how much or how little. You can get extra episodes, articles, merch, and more while also supporting our work. So please check it out today. I'm Scott Kahn, and this has been the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com.